Howdy ho, everybody. Welcome to Deep Astronomy's Astro Coffee Hangout. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space. And today we have a really fun hangout plan for you guys. We're going to talk about the actual planet Vulcan. Now, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know what I'm talking about. You know, that's the one that Spock is from in, in Star Trek. I mean, wow. So apparently, and I did not know this. There is a planet officially considered to be the planet Vulcan in real life. Uh, I guess Gene Roddenberry had had decreed this planet as as, as officially it. So my guests today um, are, are are part of a group called the Dharma Planet Survey from the University of Florida, which is just down the road from me. And uh, these guys are saying that they have found Spock's home planet. And in this hangout, we're going to learn all about the characteristics of Vulcan, which is also known as Forty Eridani A and can be seen with your naked eye. So, uh, so not that we needed it, but not the, the, planet. the star, not the planet. That's right. Good. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> so not that we needed it, but we have yet another reason to keep looking up. <laughs> so I want to welcome everybody watching our humble hangout live on YouTube, Twitch, Periscope, and Facebook. And I hope you guys will interact with our guests live because we pride ourselves here at Deep Astronomy of being one of the few venues available to you where you can get direct access to professional astronomers. And we also realize that many of you are watching the VOD after the fact, that's the pre-recorded version, uh, the recorded version, uh, or you're also listening to the audio uh, on the podcast version of this Hangout. So I want to welcome everyone, and I want to let you know that there is a link in the description box to a Google Drive folder that has all of the visuals that I am going to be uh, we're going to be talking about here and they and the my guests today have said that they are available for you to uh, download and look at yourselves and um, I would also also the, there's a link to the press release in the description box and if you want to interact with us there's several ways to do it you can do it on the live chat on YouTube I also have a discord server and the link to that is in the description box i'm also looking at periscope and uh and twitch so wow lots of stuff so hopefully you guys are somewhere watching us uh doing this okay um so let me bring up everybody let me start with my co-host dr carol christian hi carol it's good to see you hey it's great to see you too you want to give us a little in in intro to our little hangout series sure so this is afternoon astronomy coffee have my actually okay it's tea but yeah. anyway i'm having afternoon <laughs> i drink iced tea because i'm in the south um yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah well show off um <laughs> yes uh this is a series of informal chats with researchers who are currently looking at a bunch of different topics in astronomy and we pick a topic and we contact the team and we ask them to informally chat with us about their research. And what we want to know is the behind the scenes stuff. Like, why did you do this? What did you discover? How did you do it? What kind of telescope did you use? And what are you going to do in the future? So those are our big questions. And we're sponsored by the American Astronomical Society and the American Astronautical Society, two societies devoted to the professional activities of astronomers and engineers. They do a lot of outreach as well as fostering research um, by astronomers and engineers. We have professional meetings and also lots of things for teachers, students, the public, 
and like that. And also both societies have lots of information about jobs in the professions. So we thank them for their sponsorship. Yes, we definitely do. Okay, so here we are, the astronomical Brady Bunch that I like to put up and that shows all of us here in the hangout. I'm in the middle. Woohoo! Uh, hey, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm messing around here. Off to my off to well hmm, is it my right yes uh right over there no that's carol over there 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 he is <laughs> is uh is uh john g he is a professor of astronomy at the university of florida uh directly below uh my my panel and off to the left is matthew Mutterspaugh. he is the he is the director of the dharma planet survey center hi matthew welcome and he's got his he's got his <laughs> Hello. Co got Thank your co-director. You, you have your co-director there too, don't you? Yeah, Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> and also uh, down in the lower in the lower uh, right panel is uh, is uh, Bo Ma. He is a postdoc, also at the Dharma Survey at the University of Florida. And I'm told you did all the hard work, Bo. Uh, maybe I'll make a comments here. Sorry. <laughs> um, and um, sorry. So the Matt is uh, help us on, on the project and uh, is. Um, the, the director of the Dharma Plan Survey is, uh, I'm the one, actually, sorry for that. Yes. Oh, you're yes. the director, I apologize. My my apologies, I had, I somehow had saw that it was Matthew, my, my, yes. my apologies. Jean, okay. Jean is the principal investigator, I'm the project scientist. And you're the uh, okay. project faculty si member at okay. State University. Yes. Understood, okay, all right, sorry about that, folks. I'm gonna have to fix your lower third, uh, Matthew, so because I have the wrong thing on there. Um, okay, so let's get started, let's talk about Vulcan. Uh, it's actually part of the star of, is 40 Eridani B, is is 40 Eridani, first of all, a double star, uh, or is it a single star, and what is the B for? Actually, this star is, uh, have three star system in, in this, um, in this, um, you know, that's star system, and uh, Eridani um, uh, B is the one we, you know, looking at it, is, um, is, a, is a, one of the brightest ones, is the origin color star. And uh, that one is the uh, main sequence star. So we look, uh, look for relative low signals. So we end up, we find the planets around this star. And this star happened to be the one in uh, uh, Roddenberry um, mentioned that that one has the Vulcan. So, so that's we, how we found the planets. Yeah, I want to, before we go too much into the details of the star, I want to talk about that a little bit. Back in the day, mm -hmm. I guess it was one of the 90s. Is that when it was? He sent a the letter. Start of 1968. It was when? 1968. That's right. He, he, wait a minute. No, no, he went to, that was when the Star Trek series was. But he didn't write right. Sky and Tell, the Sky and Telescope magazine. Oh, until the Sky and Tell article. Yeah, no, that's that what I'm getting at. He actually went to Sky and Telescope magazine and said, yeah, um, that's it. That was what we used as the model for Vulcan, yeah. didn't he? That, that, that's correct. Yeah. Actually, the, the started with the 1960s. Uh, James Blish, he the original yeah. uh, Star Trek. He James Blish, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, start from that point, and uh, uh, they said this star is uh, is you know is probably is, is a walking home is because this star is is old star system. It's very old. It's like our sun, like uh, uh, about five billion years old. And uh, in 1991, is uh, Roddenberry just confirmed this is the star holds the walking. Okay, so that's that's, that's where I was trying to go with this. So, uh, so James, so James Blish then was a writer for the show. He also wrote yes. several of the Star Trek novels, Star Trek books. 
Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's is this is I'm a, I'm a Star Trek geek, so I got to get this out of the way first. I just want to talk about it. Uh, so he is the one who who as he wrote the scripts or wrote the the background for Star Trek uh, initially suggested that it was Forty Eridani B. Now because it's a triple star system, it's got capital A, capital B, capital C, right? That's correct, right? Okay, but exoplanets are denoted with small letters, right? Little a. That's right. But oh, no, they start with B, Either don't B. they? Why is that? Why why do they start like we did this with Trappist One B? There's not a Trappist One A. Why is that? Uh, the, the, I think that the star it depends on how you find it. I think the um, for sing, uh, for binaries, you know, if uh, usually the bright one they call A, and the faint one they call B. And uh, for this one, you know, it probably start with the uh, possible maybe the uh, have another star, maybe the white dwarf, and also the uh, M dwarf. You know, those they start probably look for those binary first. Then oh no, no, no! What I'm getting at, John, is that the yes. the stars, if they're a triple star system, they're capital A, yes. capital B, capital C. But That's if correct. they are exoplanets in orbit around a star, then they're denoted uh -huh. with small b, oh, small, no, it's b. That's right. Small c, small d. But there's no small That's a, is there? That's correct. That's what? correct. Uh, um, <laughs> I guess they they, they track the solar system like a solar system. You know, they just feel that the the a maybe just reserved for the primary. <laughs> That's the maybe the astronomy just you know astronomers field just use this kind of definition. You know, Tony, yeah. I, I, as I have said many times on these hangouts, there is no no rhyme or reason for why astronomers name stuff stuff. <laughs> except in the catalogs like the new general catalog the messier catalog you can forget the rest of the they just name stuff that come out of their head and so somebody made up this idea that we were going to do a little a little and then it got lost and whatever so that's true i, I remember okay well i do well it's confusing because airplane. i get this question a lot i and I, I, <laughs> I tell my uh students that's part of the charm of uh, learning yeah, astronomy is exactly. that there's a human element <laughs> and a historical element to it as well which yes. makes it interesting and charming but also can be very frustrating today i was telling them about how stars receive their names we were talking about variable stars which for odd reasons start with the the letter r for the first one discovered in a constellation followed by its constellation name it starts in r in the middle of the alphabet and and then it gets wilder from there because you go to a rr then rs or go to rq going backwards in the alphabet because that just would be improper of course and so yes i'm glad i'm glad we got that out of the way there is no rhyme to reason to just about but anything those were the good old days of the international astronomical <laughs> union and early well, if you look at the, our star you know a star series you know called you know not a b c d e f g but instead of the you know b a you know the o b a you know f g k m you know kind of very old system is astronomy is a kind of uh, they're learning from the what they see and then they started to develop some system and then very often later on they found oh this is not convenient just like uh, uh you know they, they named the planet nebula is nothing to do with the planet system at all <laughs> right that's that's a good point yeah but <laughs> planetary nebula have nothing yes yes okay that's right so it's so confusing you know to the outside people they say oh yeah this is a planetary we found the planets you know but that's not nothing <laughs> planets at all but anyway so this is um you know the lame you know it's just uh, um sometimes it's just uh, 
you know, for commanding, I guess. Okay, so let's talk about some of the characteristics here. 40 Eridani B, the star, capital B, is uh, a star that is bright enough that you can see it in with your naked eye. What area of the sky is it in? Is it, uh, I don't recall where Eridani it's, uh, is. Uh, next to the Orion uh, constellation. In it's next to times, Orion. If you, uh, yeah, it's very close to the Orion. Okay. And tell us a little bit about Vulcan now. You think you have found it. Then we're going to talk about how you think you found it. Uh, and uh, But first, tell us a little bit about the planet itself. What have you discovered about it? What are some of its characteristics? Okay, sure, sure, sure. Definitely. Uh, the planet we found that actually, uh, you know, it's spending quite a big effort. It's pretty, you know, um, you know we did the observation initially started with the Fairbond telescope, which uh, met, you know, the hands of telescope while we, with our spec graph. And we did the initial observation. Then we found some signal. looks like maybe possible, you know, like a planet. But we're not sure until we got our telescope, our you know, Dama endowment, the Foundation Telescope uh, online at uh, uh, Mount Lemon, and then we continually monitored for uh, another, you know, almost seventy measurements. You know, that, that then Boma, you know, uh, my postal, he did the uh, data analysis, and we we found the signal, you know, very convincing, and then we basically added uh, all the previous survey data from the hubs from CAG. And or even from the uh, Magellan and also the Smart Telescope. Then we add all these data together, and then we we found the radio wave signal there is very very confident is a is a planet signal. And then also we did uh, you know uh, Greg uh, Greg uh, his colleague excellent colleague Greg Henry uh, uh, wasn't able to join, but he actually provided us the very excellent uh, photometry data, the flux of the star. And the flux star should be absolutely stable. The star don't like have even have the variations like. Uh, uh, you know, like other stars. So therefore, what happened is, um, and then all these piece of information we put together eventually show this is the planet. Then Bohr actually did the um, you know, careful calculations in uh, 8.5 uh, Earth mass planets. And also uh, it's 42 days. Um, the, because this is uh, mass and the location, it basically fall into the, um, you know, super Earth regime. And also the uh, the if you consider you know this is because it's a super Earth, and uh, that density more likely uh, is like a, you know similar as our rocky planets like our Earth or or, or you know or Venus. So if you consider the density similar as Earth or Venus, then you can scale the mass. Then you pretty much commence the size maybe two times and volume maybe eight times. So therefore these guys are probably two times bigger than Earth, and it's located close to the sun. And then, then of course, the, it's kind of interesting. We got this paper finished. You know, we submit to the journal um, the monthly notice of uh, Royal Astronomy Society. And then Greg, you know, one of our calls, Greg actually sent me email, and uh, and also sent a team email. Now this star um, is uh, is the one uh, Roddenberry host uh, Vulcan. Then we started getting very interesting to this system. And until uh, July, the you know the the paper get accepted by the journal, and then we uh, you know we started put the you know put a new story together, and then um, indeed um, you know so this is pretty much the whole story how we found this system and how we commenced this is a Vulcan because the uh, you know the Vulcan as according to the Star Trek and uh, original they talk about the you know, Vulcan is close to the sun and it's hot, and um, it's more massive. And especially the people when they walk on. Vulcan, uh, they feel that it's easy to get tired because of stronger gravity. So therefore, based on all these character, 
And uh, our discovery is almost exact match what uh, Rodemary and also John, uh, James uh, Blish, uh, they initially imagined the, the planet looks like. So therefore, this is the Vulcan they're oh. looking for. So I, I... Okay, can you guys hear me? Hello? Yes. Yes. Good. I don't know why I'm not vis visible in the uh, meeting anymore, but um, I'm going to now be, for the remaining of the handout, hang out a, uh, a disembodied voice. I don't know where my video went. Uh, but I, mm -hmm. you can hear me, right? Yes, I can hear you well. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know that Carol can hear us. Carol, can you hear us? Yes, yes. Okay. okay so I did have, I wanted to back up a little bit. So you went pretty fast through the whole summer. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, re well, let's review some of that, of that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about a little bit about the, f first of all, say again, why you looked at this object? I mean, oh, you, that is a you, you weren't, you weren't thinking about. We never, thought, we never thought about these uh, Vulcan things uh, start with, because okay. this, uh, we started with a Dharma planet survey, and that whole survey uh, is looking for 150 nearby star with okay. amount 150 star, 130 of them are like sun-like. There's 20 of them like red, red dwarf, like okay. a more like okay. a, so a like the sun, star. some red That's dwarf. It. Okay. That's okay. So okay. 130 so of them like sun. So this happened to be one of these uh, 130 stars. Ah, okay. So you're surveying with this particular telescope, which we'll talk about. And then another okay. question was, you had mentioned both spectroscopy and photometry. So for people to remember, photometry is you, take a camera and you put a filter in front of it and you do it with many filters and that tells you things about the color and you monitored it because because you wanted to look for variations in case the planet there was a planet that created a transit is that the idea well the, that's for two reasons one is uh think about it. if a star has a big spot you know, like a sunspot. Ah, okay, you star spots as well, yes. Then yes, they yes. can produce radio velocity signals as well. They can also- Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah, because these are cool stars and- That's, yeah. that's a cool star. So cool, cool star tend to be less unlikely. The sun, you know, of course, they have more active in terms of having a sunspot, but these guys are need to be the uh, origin color stars. I need to be no mass. In theory, they probably don't have much spot, but they do have some, you know, variations. Um, but but, sure. but we monitored that, the Greg monitored that for 20 years, and there's no variation. Of this at all. Basically, wow. there's no spot uh, added to his, you know, his instrument is the basic on the ground. And wow. the, any of the variations nothing. of that, you know, that's, that's nothing. It's just like a sun. <laughs> like a sun, you didn't see any variations. Basically means you don't have the big spot. So basically rule out. Okay. Of those okay. So then the number two, the spectrum. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Matthew. I, I, I can speak more on the photometry sure. yeah, that went to that. Go for if it. you are interested. Go for it. Uh, so yeah. uh, about. And then Tony, you can have it back. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you, Carol. So, <laughs> so some 30 years ago at, at PSU, uh, we got into the game of doing robotic uh, uh, astronomy. Tennessee so State. Bought, yes, Tennessee State University. Uh, we got in the business of doing robotic astronomy. We did that for a few reasons. Number one, doing photometry is incredibly repetitive. And so for humans to do it and try to get a 20 year time baseline, which there's definitely science to do there, uh, that's not necessarily the best use of labor unless you can turn it into a ro robotic one. Also, we're in Tennessee where it's raining all, day, all week this week. And we'd like our telescopes to be somewhere where it's not raining, such as Arizona on a tall mountain, but we, our jobs are here in Tennessee. And so that also meant uh, robotics way to go. 
And then the up, final reason is it keeps everything really stable. Robots do the exact same thing the exact same way each time. And so the measurement precision you can get is better than if a human were doing it. And so we have a fleet of seven fully robotic telescopes at Fairborn Observatory at this point that make measurements of stars' brightness every single night for the stars on the program. Uh, we select stars for that to support a number of exoplanet programs to also do stellar astrophysics. Uh, for this survey, it was chosen uh, for nearby stars, which is also why this would have been chosen as Vulcan, um, bright enough to study uh, where we can get the measurement precisions we want. Um, and so, yes, there's a number of reasons to do that. One is to isolate false positives, things like star spots that could mimic a planet. Um, but the planetary signal is going to be persistent, whereas spots come and go. And so that was one of the key findings of this specific uh, research to confirm the planetary nature. Uh, these uh, telescopes have done all sorts of other photometry programs for exoplanets, including these were the ones that uh, were uh, first able to measure and publish the transit of HD 209458b, which was the very first planet discovered to pass in front of its host star, causing a shadow which confirmed that it's not just the face on binary causing a small RV signal, that these really are planets uh, in nature. And so we continue to march the science forward with these uh, instruments. Okay, so let's show some pictures. Uh, we have, I'm back by the way on my video, I don't know why it went away. Uh, but the, uh, what I'm showing now is the very first, it's called uh, 16th Moon 4. This is the observatory that discovered the planet, folks. Now, this is this planet. I just want to reiterate, in case uh, it was said, but I want to say it again. It's got a, uh, it's uh, got a 42-day period, meaning it goes around its sun once every 42 days, and it's roughly twice the size of the Earth. And you guys found it with this telescope. It's a 50-inch reflector that uses the radial velocity method to find planets, okay? Now we've talked about, I'm gonna show the animation for that in a minute, but a lot of our viewers know what radial velocity is. Uh, and this is the instrument. Uh, where is it located, by the way, guys? It's it located on Mount Lemon. Uh, Mount Lemon. Yes, Mount Lemon, Arizona. Arizona, some of the yes. best skies in the US. Nice and dry. Now, for you amateurs out there, this Astro, is it Astro Haven? That yes. clamshell, dome thing you can buy those you can get those off the shelf and they're not cheap but you can get them uh here's another shot um uh of it uh in another angle this is when the sudden sun is starting to set and finally here it is in the dark with its clamshells partially open uh to um to observe the sky with now um you guys have a team of people and i'm showing your team right now um and i are you in there, John? Yes, in, I'm the middle center? one. You're the center. Uh, okay, yes. Yes, I'm the middle one. Wear, uh, wear the red hat and the, uh, you know, the t-shirt. Okay, and uh, this is the entire team. Where's Bo? Uh, this is a part of the team. You know, the, this is a part of the telescope team actually. Um, oh, I see. Uh, okay. In, in order to get the Dharma panel survey going, uh, actually we have like a three major team. You know, one is the telescope team, the other is the instrument team, and the third one is the science team. You know, and uh, you know, like uh, Matt and uh, Boma, they both are on the science team. And uh, while these guys really put the telescope together with me, you know, and uh, you know, we operate a telescope, so they have to be fully automatic. So there are uh, these people, most of them from the Stewart Observatory, 
University of Arizona, except the one that next to next to me uh, on the left side is young guy. is called Sarah Jaron. Jer He's a grad student at the University of Florida, and he worked with me uh, as an undergrad. It's just amazing. He by himself spend the most time just able to roll the telescope operating software so we can make a telescope fully automatic doing spectroscopy. You know, it's quite challenging, but he able, able to do that. So you can you can switch back and forth between being uh, a spectroscopic observatory and a visual one? Is that what you said? No, this is a, no. We, this telescope is fully dedicated for uh, spectroscopy. Oh, okay. It's basically, right. it, it works with our uh, dumb and the do, called tow optical spec graph you know it's basically doing the uh, all the measurements every night when weather is good the open automatic and the take data of a star and then repeatedly and uh, we can uh, you know depend on the you know how much observation you want to do we can schedule you know put our cadence into the observation so we can you know schedule all the observation we want and uh, so therefore this is a really uh, need telescope right now you know you can schedule many uh, observation at one night or you can observe single observation every few nights, you know, so there's kind of schedule. And so we can monitor many targets at the same time. Okay, so uh, let me get a, a couple of questions here. Raj Luther wants to know, what's the name of the observatory? Is it just the Dharma survey or is it, do you guys have the, a name The whole observatory is called Mount Lemon uh, Station, officially called Mount Lemon Observatory or uh -huh. Mount Lemon Station uh, of Stewart Observatory. I see. So, so many, mo most of the radio velocity observations came from Mount Lemon, uh, but uh, initially, the spectrograph was at a dedicated spectroscopic telescope at Fairborn Observatory, which is where all of the other telescopes doing the photometry, the brightness measurements, are located as well. So uh, Mount Lemon had a big fire many years ago. Uh, that's about two years ago. Yeah. I think, yes. Two years ago. Yeah. Five years ago, yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so the uh, so that's the so that, there you go, Raj. Um, Mahans Milling is asking the paper does not state anything about the atmosphere of the planet. Any info on this? Won't the star uh, blow the atmosphere away when it get when it when it is close? Uh, right now, uh, our data uh, couldn't tell the, if they have atmosphere or not. Uh, but one thing, you know, for example, like Madam already mentioned, uh, we use the ground-based uh, uh, flux measurement. Another purpose is to look for possible transit. Uh, but so far, because this planet is so small, like only like a two Earth radius, the signal is below the limit of the ground-based photometry. So therefore, uh, it's challenging. So the, the good news now, actually, the, I just went back from you know, Spain. You know, there's a GDC 10.4 meter telescope, which is not just a ground-based telescope. The director, he and I talk about that we will plan to follow up with a better, you know, bigger telescope to do some kind of very high precision photometry on the ground. And hopefully we can see if uh, uh, during transit time, we'll see if find the planets across the star. If we cross star, then we can measure the radius. And then if that confirmed, then you can go on with the, either ground-based telescope or space telescope like Hubble, or maybe future, you know, John JWST, then you might be able to see the atmospheric features. Okay, That's so, what, uh, so but there, there's, there's also other opportunities to study the atmosphere, even if it doesn't transit. So our current photometry uh, does not show any indications that um, may transit. Um, but another uh, feature of this system is because it's so close to our own solar system, it is uh, conveniently located. The closer you are to the solar system, the easier it is to resolve uh, the planet next to the star. It's still a very hard thing because it's like you have a spotlight and you're trying to find a lightning bug right next to it. 
but if you could somehow block the light from the star, maybe we could see this faint planet next. So the further it appears to be from that star, the better, and that so close stars are preferred for that. And that would give us an opportunity to get a spectrum of the reflected light from the planet itself and be able to study that. There's a lot of options for how this atmosphere might work. It might be something where it's a thick atmosphere like Venus, it's going to insulate the planet. It might be more reflective to uh, reject light and energy. And so uh, that could lower the temperature. And so okay, it's kind of right on the edge of the habitable zone, but there's a huge number of uh, ways in which the planet's climate might wind up, but we don't have that information yet. Right, but okay. And you also don't even know if there is an atmosphere. Uh, right now we don't know, but right. uh, I think that based on the <laughs> past uh, study of Kepler uh, planet, actually um, the, this, with this kind of mass of the planet, uh, the more likely it probably have the atmosphere because of the strong gravity. Okay, so that's where that comes from. I'm sorry, but I get really annoyed when I read new papers about new discoveries about the, these planets around red dwarf stars. In fact, we just you know we just uh, there was a there was a paper out uh, last week with uh, one of the first. Uh, discovered planets by Tess uh, was one of these that was around a red dwarf star and they said it, 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 it you know if it has an atmosphere if it has atmosphere it'll have liquid water blah 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 and they don't even know that yet and so I, that's where that must come from then John it, it is it is that because it's around a red dwarf because of its size to earth's masses it and, and the fact even if it is so close to the star it probably has an atmosphere is that where that comes from uh, no, the atmosphere is basically is, is more to do with its own structure. You know, that, that because star is this planet is more massive, is eight Earth mass, so the gravity <laughs> is strong. So they and plus this goes because it's so strong gravity. So they likely they have the volcano activity on this planet. So therefore, they once they have the volcano activities, they will outgas. So they will automatically generate atmosphere. Uh, on this planet. Automatic. So whoa, 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 whoa! Automatically generated? Did you just say? Yeah, because if you have the volcano activity. It, uh, more likely it could generate the outgas. Just like oh, okay, so because it's two Earth masses, even That's though it, yes. it orbits its sun so quickly, and it's probably yes. tidally locked, even with all yes. of that, because it's geologically active, you're yes. saying there's probably yes. an atmosphere there. More likely I than not having an atmosphere there. That's I think so because the uh, because this is based on the based on uh, several facts. First of all, the Kepler. Discover similar, you know, mass of the planet. They all, most of them, all show a thick atmosphere. And uh, secondly, uh, itself, you know, because of the say strong gravity, it it will outgas as well. And okay. but of course, there is one other against that is basically because these guys, you know, cold to sun, and uh, so they probably have the solar wind. So solar wind will be possibly blow out part of the atmosphere, and also because it cold to the, their sun. So the UV radiations could also destroy some of the uh, atmosphere. So therefore, there's probably some kind of fight between the, you know, between between the you know solar wind and the solar UV radiation, you know, to destroy the atmosphere. But on the other hand, they also have the mechanism to create. Okay. The atmosphere, I'm like sorry. A, you know. A lot, so, a lot just became clear to me that has been always confusing, <laughs> and I want to thank yes. you for that, John, because sure. I. I get so annoyed. Every, they're talk, they always talk about these these planets having atmospheres without having clearly any idea. But you're saying that because of the these are super Earths, yes, their their characteristics are likely, because, especially if they're close to a star, to have that's, an atmosphere. Whether it's habitable or not, who can say? That's right. But that's right. you've got an atmosphere. 
Thank yeah, you. That, that's what a, I can have the yes, that I, I really. I hope and, you guys understood that too, guys, watching and, because that was. And while we can't say it specifically about this planet individually, statistically speaking, due to the Kepler planets, where we do see so many other physical similarities as what we have with this planet, the fact that they tend to more likely than not have atmospheres gives good suggestion that the same statistics is probably applicable to this one. Okay. So, um, um, I have one other, sorry, I have one other question. And so this star in particular is like, uh, uh not as massive as the sun, but it's not like an M dwarf. And the no, it's, not it's, says it's, it's, it's very, um, constant. So it's not one of these nasty flaring stars, right? It's not, it's not actually, this guy is, is about 80% of the solar mass is a happen to be okay. more like a, we call kid. Uh, dwarf. Okay, dwarf, yeah. Uh, okay. So these guys, uh, in terms of color, is more orange color. You know, we have sun, sun is uh, yellow color. So this is orange color because of the uh, the mass is massive, massive. So therefore, this planet we calculate, this planet is uh, probably well getting about roughly uh, the sun, uh, roughly is produce about 35% of the energy of our sun, you know, because ah, okay. uh, they are less okay. massive. So therefore, the, uh, it's also interesting though. The half zone of these planets because of the less it's movement, closer, so they're closer, but not close to these uh, 42 days. So we calculate even the uh, the closest half zone could be like a 0 0.4, 0 0.5 astronomical unit, which means it's half you know between us and the sun distance. And um, so therefore, these guys about two times closer to the to the sun, and uh, you know in terms of the you know the, the habitable itself, probably not. But the good news, these guys most likely tidal locked. So therefore, it really depends on the uh, the condition. You know, if tidal locked, one side was definitely hot, the other side could be really cool. And also depends on how you know how much atmosphere they have. If they have a relatively thin atmosphere, so the 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 back backside is really cool. It might be possible, or could be livable. You know, some zoom might be habitable. Very oh, possible. Interesting. So yeah. It's very interesting. And I'm, I, I was showing the habitable zone diagram you had, by the way, while you were talking. That's right. yes. So that's you good. can see that clearly. We are these planets with not within the habitable zone. Is right. is is you know within you know I, the, the interior to the habitable zone of okay. the old star. All right. Uh, Repairman Scully is asking on Twitch, and I, that's a good question. So uh, Vulcan, as in a planet closer to the sun than Mercury, is it closer to this to its star than Mercury is to the sun? Uh, right now, yes, it's about 0.2 AU, and uh, our Mercury is about 88 days, like 0.4, roughly about 0.4 AU. So it's about yeah half our distance. Okay, roughly. Now I want to talk about and, and Bo, if, if, please feel free to comment uh, anytime you want. I would like to get you in on this discussion too. I'm showing the animation of the radial velocity method. This is how you detected Vulcan around uh, 40 Eridani B, right? Yes. So. Uh, what, so did you, now we're seeing a little, uh, a little spectrum wobble back and forth. Is that what you saw in the telescope data, uh, is the wobbling spectra? Uh, actually, if you just look at the spectra, right, you can't uh, really see the line moving because what you show here, the animation is the exaggerated situation. Right, from it's exaggerated. Data, mm -hmm. Yeah, from the real data using your eye. You really can cannot tell if the line is moving because the radio velocity amplitude here we show from this planet is only like a four three meter per second. That's actually corresponding to like a zero point 
zero zero one percent of a pixel on our RCCD, right? So if you <laughs> your eye, you really cannot see that. You have to use a um, mathematical tool to actually analyze the data and uh, show the small variation. So that was an exaggerated view, as you pointed out. And what we saw was this big wobble back and forth, but really you said it was less than a fraction. It was a fraction of a pic of a pixel. That zero point zero zero one. It's about 1,000, a few thousands, a few thousands. Basically what Bo said is, uh, you know, we only detect peak to vanity uh, roughly about uh, four meters per second. So that 4% of our detector is uh, sensible, is more like a 1,000 pixel, roughly respond like, a, you know, the one meter per second. So it's about a few percent, few thousands pixel shifts. So therefore there's no way can see by eyes, no way. So that's the reason why Bo actually spent quite a few, years developed the data pipeline, you know, the, the data pipeline now become the best in the world, actually. And the, uh, we the, the data pipeline, hold on, say that wow, again. Wow, the best. One of the, no, let's just take credit, man. It's the best, all right? <laughs> no, is it, so is it a, a pipe, a, a data pipeline of radial velocity data specifically that you've developed? Yes. And this is, it's got automated procedures in it to look for these wobbles of a fraction of a pixel? Most of, most of the part are automatic. Oh, okay. And so when you see these, these characteristic wobbles, then you're looking, uh, you have a detection or at least a candidate detection that you then send to other observatories for follow-up. Is that the way it works? Uh, most of the time, right? We, we use our own telescope to follow up. Okay. During our survey, we have an initial phase just looking, do a blind survey and just looking for credible candidates. After we found some candidates, then we will do an intense campaign, basically doing observation every night for the best candidates. Okay. So the Dharma telescope then, the survey itself, because it's a survey and it's automated, how much of the sky does it look at each night? Uh, we observe every night roughly uh, around 20 to 30 targets, roughly every night. 30 to 40, I'm sorry, what? No, 20 to 30. 20 to 30 what? Star. Stars. Okay. So That's you have a program each night that you're going to study yes. and you and you do it that way. Got it. Okay. That's so right. Right. Uh, for some reason I was I was thinking LSST where they're going to look at <laughs> but no 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 no. Okay. So well, well basically oh. we we program. We program to uh you know we we have like a maybe you know as I mentioned you know we have 150 uh survey targets we put into the schedule and then what happened in the program we were based on the uh, weather condition and location of the sky and how far from moon all these things eventually determine which target will be observed at that moment. So they will, based on the priority, all the things, the eventual select targets to go on with observation. Got it. Oh, okay. So, all right. So you guys found this thing with, you, you confirmed that there is a planet uh, of roughly two times the Earth, ma mass of the Earth around this star. And Matthew, you said that you were trying to find transits, but you haven't seen anything yet. Now, my question to you is, Tess, is out there now. It's currently in sector three. It's looking at the southern hemisphere. When it gets up there to the north, around Orion and Eridani, are you expecting anything from test? Are you hoping for anything from test? Because obviously, with a transit, you got to have the right geometry. And do we have any idea about the geometry of the system? There, if it transits, test maybe has a fifty percent chance of catching it because test looks at the sky in three week intervals 
and then it moves on to the next part of the sky. Yeah, I know. So three weeks is 21 days. This one's 42 days. So is it programmed to be at the right phase when a transit may occur or may not? I haven't done that calculation uh, that far into the future. Right. Um, so that would be uh, I was gonna ask one that. tool that could possibly. By uh, the way, you can though. see I have my test shirt on. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> We should have some face on that. Yeah, <laughs> I want one of those. Okay, well, so you can order it at Land's End. Uh, All you have to do is submit a patch to Land's End, and people can order whatever they want with your patch. So hey, there you go, Dharma. Yeah. Dharma survey. <laughs> Everybody can have a shirt. That's right. Yes. Dharma swag. Definitely. Dharma survey. Actually, the we have the logo. Use some kind of online. It's kind of very interesting because it's a part of the Indian kind of. Uh, culture that show that's what like, i was wondering yeah mi mix of the chinese uh, yin and yang but the middle have the nice. you know, swamp is nice. that's why we pick this name is uh, very interesting because the dharma is uh, about the law of the universe the you know, life of the universe that kind of thing yes. and, and the dharma center we are looking for life in the universe so therefore this excellent is, I think it very well okay so let me get to a couple more questions here uh sure uh Let's see. Uh, is there a plan? Oh, uh, Mad Mad End has a good question. Is there a plan, maybe, to use citizen science to analyze this data? So, Boma set up this this nice pipeline. Is there any way, maybe, we have citizen science initiative can be set up? Uh, for this one, it's probably not. For this one, because the is very very high precision uh, instrument and the data uh, is not intensive. So, therefore, we are uh, you know able to use our own pipeline to you know automatically process them. And eventually, like Boz mentioned earlier on, so then I uh, can find the candidates. And uh, the candidates, you know, in the, in the long term, you know, we might be end up, if you know, NSF and NASA support us, you know, maybe end up, we uh, could set up the website. Eventually, we can broadcast some of some the of candidates. The, you know, maybe the, the citizen could, uh, or, or community can follow up some of the candidates to do the photometry or maybe doing, you know, some other science. You know, because this is, is fun in a way because we are looking for, uh, 150 all nearby stars. You know, they most of them are sun-like star, and 20 of them like a, a M dwarf. So therefore, these guys are all within 190 years. So therefore, you can think about it. it's more not just regular people doing radio velocity. Say, oh yeah, I, I search another 300 star, but these are the one close to us. So which means the human future exploration most likely will be go to this star. So therefore, to engage with the community, engage with the citizen. To you know, to look into this, to study this system, is really helpful because eventually, after all, you know, if we find those systems, we can well understand those systems, and then maybe in the future, you know, the, give you know for better preparation for future either space mission to do further study, or maybe even in future maybe send the human probes to some of these planets, including this Vulcan, for example. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I've tried to find the comment, but I, I can't right now. Uh, it's. Uh, uh, Somebody was asking how far away it is. It's 16 light years. It's also known as eight, HD six nine or two six nine six five, um, and so that's the other nomenclature that they use. Um, okay, so Bo, I have a question for you. So radio velocity, you're, you you've got it down to looking for very tiny movements within a pixel of data. Um, uh, can you first of all what kind of information does radio velocity give you what what is it best at telling you about the exoplanet and my follow-up question is can you learn anything about the geometry of the system from radio velocity like um go ahead 
No, well, the, the radio velocity basically, as the ball already mentioned, is really when looking for these, you know, repeated signals. So over, you know, many months, you see that it move back and forth about a few thousands pixels. And of course, the reality is probably much more complicated than that because we, the Earth moving, you know, we are part of the moving system, orbit around the sun and also the Earth rotating itself. So therefore, when we get radio velocity, the radio velocity movement will be far bigger than uh, pixels. And uh, that because of the Earth's rotation and also the Earth's orbit of the sun. So therefore, in the end, what happened, the ball, you know, we, we you know, developed software able to make those uh, pre precise measurements of those, you know, prediction of the, you know, Earth's uh, orbital motions and also rotation motions. And uh, to crack that and then leave these tiny motions and that is signal is coming from the planet. So yeah, it's not trivial at all. It's a very, uh, you know, very careful analysis. And that requires also very careful uh, instrument calibration and also require instrument super stable. So that's why I sh share one of the, you know, two of the slot uh, other figures show the instrument looks like. You know, we build instrument with a very, very, very careful engineered uh, instrument. Uh, so super stable. It's, we treat it as almost like space instrument, you know, put a thermal blanket around all the components to minimize the, any of the temperature variation, cause any possible small motions that will destroy your panic signals. Yeah, I'm showing that image now, the one where you have it covered. This is the instrument, folks, um, all covered in foil to keep the temperature as low as possible, right, John? No, no, no problem. It's, it's, it's basic, uh, with this called MOI, is a multi-layer insulation. Um, the, this is the people use for space instrument to insulate the uh, instrument. This one actually uh, helped uh, us to maintain temperature stability to uh, mini Kelvin. Mini Kelvin, remember. We so it's are, more, you're, you're more interested in, in temperature stability than you are cold, right. cold temperature. Right. Not the cool, but it's uh, in the room temperature, but it's uh, to the mini Kelvin. It's about thousands wow. of the temperature of your air conditioning room. Is that because, I'm now showing the, the optical train, is that sure. because if that temperature varies much during a measurement that the gratings, oh, yeah. which you can see in yes. this picture, by the way, folks, is the little fuzzy colors, those are the gratings yes. in the, in the uh, optical assembly, uh, then they shift, is that what happens? Uh, yes, if, the, if the, your, your instrument is not stable and it created uh, some kind of a movement and that movement is very hard to track down with your calibration source. So therefore that could make the uh, very, uh, you know, variation in your measurements. So the creating uh, uh, uncertainties. So that's the reasons we basically able to keep the instrument to the mini Kelvin because we calculate, well, no, okay, we, we, we monitor, we even measure that. For the mini Kelvin temperature stability overnight, we can see the instrument only drift 0.3 meter per second, 0.3. Remember, we talk about this planet wow. is about, you know, you know 1.8 meter per second, you know, the plus wow. minus 1.8. So we are astonishing stable. This one actually I've proud to say, you know, you, um, you know, we probably heard a lot about the past, the great successful of the hubs, you know, hubs and Yeah, it's hard. Yes, stability yes. is about one meter level per second stability per night. We are about 0.3 meter per second stability. Wow. In terms of stability is much, much better. And that's the reason we, because we did this very, very careful engineering. Actually, in fact, if we talk about that, we actually did like a, more like a, five layers of temperature insulation from the big room to small room to the, you know, to the, you know, oh, the, to the interesting. To, the encoder, to, to the, you know, some more blanket, you know, we do not a very it's like a Russian doll. That's right. Yes. In, <laughs> incredible stable. You can't find it, maybe harder to find a more stable environment than we, we had with this instrument. 
Okay, well, uh, I want to go back to a concept uh, that you, so you talked about temperature stability, why that's important with radio velocity. I've got the animation back up, which I know is exaggerated, but I want to talk about the concept of velocity. Who can tell me about that? Because I don't, it's confusing when you, when you say we're good to so many meters per second or your velocity is down yes. to the milli, whatever it is. Uh, okay. Talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by velocity? Okay, so maybe you can then, uh, maybe Matt can maybe go, go ahead. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, so the, the question is, uh, why are we measuring the velocities of these stars? So uh, Newton's third law says, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. As the planet goes around the star, the star reacts to that motion by moving just a little bit. And in that motion, it's changing its velocity as it's coming towards and away from us. And that allows us to infer by seeing that reaction what the action was. What we get from that are first a detection. Second, we get the mass, although we don't purely get the mass because there's some ambiguity between, is it a lightweight planet like this or a heavier planet like this since we're only seeing one portion of the motion. And so um, we have a lower estimate for the mass of uh, eight solar masses. We believe it's very close uh, to that though. Uh, there was a question earlier about, can you tell anything else about the orbits? The shape of the, is it going really fast towards us and then receding slowly? That can tell us if it's an eccentric orbit rather than a circular orbit. Um, one other thing that you can see by looking for this orbital motion uh, are other planets. And uh, in our solar system, when Uranus was first being studied, people looked at its orbit and it didn't uh, follow Kepler's laws of planetary motions perfectly. And the reason was there was something else out there pulling on it with gravity of its own. And doing the calculations, they looked directly there. Actually, the first people doing the uh, calculations the, um, were uh, British, and the royal astronomer said, no, you can't have the telescope to look there. And so the French did it instead and found Neptune exactly where they had predicted an object would be, and that's how Neptune was discovered. So with these uh, systems, if we happen to find another system that might have multiple planets, we can also then measure some very small effects that will change their orbits caused by the gravity between one planet and the other. And that can tell us a lot more, such as something about whether this angle is more edge on so that we can get the true masses of the planet. So there's additional subtle effects beyond just, okay, each star interacting with the planet, so, sorry, each planet interacting with the star individually, there's also some three-body interactions that can happen in such systems. And so people have used that, not in this system, we only have one planet so far, but definitely in other systems. Wow, that's really a lot. You can get a lot from radial velocity then. So I may just wanna... I make a comment? You may, yeah. you, of course. Please do, Bo. Yeah, I heard from some of my colleagues that they are actively, they are actively looking for more planets inside this system. Actually, one of my close friends told me that there potentially could be a planet with orbital period of 17 days. Wow. But so, so far, I haven't been able to confirm that. They are actually taking more data to try to see if, if there are more planets. So well, if Bo, Bo doesn't say it's true, then it's not true. <laughs> so well, that's not necessarily true, though. I mean, uh, the way is, uh, uh, when you find planets, obviously, it really depends on uh, how many data you take. So the once you get more data, you know, you suddenly the, the weak signal could be show up. 
And uh, I'm not surprised because this planet is a more circular orbit. So I'm not surprised this system maybe have a multi-planet system, you know, just like our solar system. You know, we have the Earth, you know, we have the Jupiter, yeah. you know, we have others. So this one, if, if the, it's very circular one, and more likely they maybe have a multi-planet system. It could be very small. It might be difficult to detect them. Sure. So, yeah. so in, in addition to all of those things that, that Matt was just telling us about, you could probably find more, you, you wouldn't be surprised if there were more planets there. And embedded in that signal that Bo looks at is probably evidence of that. You know how with a telescope you get more resolution with a larger diameter mirror uh is that is that what helps you with the radio velocity what do you need to get more information more resolution out of um, this so if you wanted to find those other planets what do you need a bigger telescope what 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 is it a bigger spectroscope uh, for this one for this one you know because so bright is is you know video video you can see it on the the in terms of the you know radio velocity and uh, obviously you know more photon will be better uh, but it's really more, in my opinion, you know, especially with our telescope, is really more observation is very important. So therefore, so this more. target is still in the in our queue, still taking more data on it right now. So therefore, the, we will continue monitoring this. Hopefully, we'll get far more data in the future. Maybe we'll do tell see if they have additional planets in this system. Uh, but the other thing is that you may see that uh, not big telescope will help you. Is the really the instrument. Even though our instrument now is getting to the state of art, you know, with reach submeter per second, um, but in order to see smaller planets, really you want to push it for to possible even 0.1 meter per second, which is about 10 times better than our current precision. For to achieve that kind of goal, and really require this instrument to be, you know, only stable, but also require better calibration and source, which by the way, we uh, already developed some kind of uh, UF Patent, you know, is a patent a new source that allowed better calibration, and that calibration, you know, could be improved to better than 0.1 meter per second. And then with lot of photons, of course, with big telescope would help. So then you can get a lot of photons with better precision. Then you might be able to see smaller planets like 0 0.1, 0 0.3 meter, like us, like size planet, like that, oh. in the long term. Okay. Uh, the, the ultimate limit is that the stars themselves, uh, they jitter quite a bit, their surfaces as well. And so there's going to be some point in which can you push it further and will the stars themselves intrinsically even allow that? We're already at a point where many of the stars we do look at jitter on this level already. Uh, so this one happens to be a very quiet, tame star, um, but that's not always the case. Okay, that, that you directly answered a question I was about to ask from mad end she wanted or he wanted to know if the star showed any high surface activity and you're saying uh, no, have but... some activity not very high they definitely have some activity but the good news um the you know the the stellar activity uh their behavior is different from the planet signals so therefore the uh if you're able to take a lot of measurements and not only not a measurement but also take the measurements in the blue wavelengths and the red wavelengths then you should be able to tell the difference because star spot activity they are color dependent because they are you know red color they have more photons than blue so therefore if they're caused by the stellar activity then you'll see more for more radio velocity signals in the blue wavelengths than red wavelengths so therefore you can use that kind of signals to distinguishing uh the planet signal from the activity so therefore uh, for future to look for very small mass planets, indeed, is getting much more complicated. So you require a lot of measurement 
and also require broad wireless measurements as well to, to, to help discriminate these kind of signals. So embedded in a signal, a spectrum of a star, even if it's wobbling or isn't wobbling, if it's an active star, let's just forget the planets for a minute. If it's an active star that you're taking a spectra of, then embedded in that spectra is evidence of the activity of that star because more photons, let's say if it's a, a, a stellar eruption, a CME or something like that, would have more photons in the blue, you would see more, act, more photons in the blue uh, being blue shifted toward the observer, right? Is that? Yeah, how? you will see the difference. You'll see the blue wavelengths radio velocity and the red wavelengths radio velocity signal are different. So blue minus red will have a different, will have yes, something left. That's right. That's right. Oh, but okay. planets are not. Planets are not. Yeah, planets are just a shift in the signal. That's right. And the amount yes. of the shift, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the amount, how yeah. much. In, in the case yeah. of this, it's a, it's a fraction of a pixel, but if it's, that isn't, that is a measure of the velocity, right? How much it yes. shifts. Okay. Right. Good. Good. See, I'm learning a lot in this hangout, guys. I mean, I really am. I tell you, I'm still, I'm still thinking <laughs> about this enjoy? atmosphere yeah. business, yeah. uh, because it was a real source of confusion for me. So I'm really, I'm really happy. But the fla this. also flaring activities would be really irregular. And so the point about yes, more data more data, yes. You keep seeing more data and it's repetitive. And then you know you have a, a periodic phenomenon, whereas, um, right. you know, flares from stars would be... That's a regular, irregular. That's yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. So that's why these kinds of surveys are really well suited for ground-based uh, ob observatories, isn't it? You just need a lot of observations. You don't necessarily... Absolutely. Do you do you need? Does the atmosphere get in your way much? No, it's not. Well, I mean, of course, if you have the bad weather, then you won't able to observe. But other than that, there's not much effect. Okay. Uh, that's the reason why we build this fully dedicated Dharma Endowment Foundation Telescope because it's fully dedicated. We don't have to do anything else. It's you know, <laughs> it's fully used for this one. You only monitor 150 star, so therefore every star you can observe more than 100 times, which is not able to afford by any other observatory. In the past, so that's another reason why Dharma Planet Survey able to find these planets. In fact, uh, you know, I probably like to share a little bit, uh, uh, you know, some kind of preview the, of the survey. You know, right now we have over a dozen you know, low-mass planet candidates in our pipeline right now. So uh, some of them we are ready to write a paper, and uh, so this definitely tell you that the the high cadence, you know, survey with dedicated telescope, you know, with high precision spectrograph, make a huge difference. Uh, one of the key things with robotic telescopes is also the cadence. Uh, if you're looking for this specifically to be a 42-day signal, that tells you if you sample it every week, once every seven days, that's probably going to give you pretty good coverage of the orbital period and map that out well. If you have a system where you've already looked for the week-long and 40-day-long systems, then you might step that down to once a month at that point as you transition to looking for longer period things. One final thing that's uh, neat about robotic telescopes is uh, telescopes are not dedicated to one task. Usually folks who look at bright stars like we do uh, miss half the month and it's always every 29 and a half day separation. And so you get these weird gaps and aliases that can make it difficult to interpret. Why do we not get the telescope for half the month every month? That's when the moon is not as bright, when it's at crescent or new phases. And people who want to do things like <laughs> at really distant galaxies. Yeah, they want to look at the 
fucking why faint want stuff. <laughs> really faint stuff, distant galaxies. I don't know why they would be doing this, but yeah, apparently but, they yeah. do that. And they need the time when the moon's not bright. Since we're just doing one thing with these telescopes, we get it every night, no matter what the moon phase uh, is. Okay, Condor Boss is asking, and then we got to go because I'm out of, oh shoot, it's already four o'clock. Uh, 0.3 meters per second. Wouldn't the Earth tug the sun that much? Um, how much How much does the uh, sun How does the pull of the sun is about 0.1 meter per second? 0.1 meter per second. And boy, you have to disentangle that from all the other planets also. Bo can do it. That's right. So that's why I say. You got a fan club started, Bo. Yeah, on the ground, actually, there are some of my colleagues. They're actually looking at the sun and they're trying to disentangle the signal of Venus when the radio velocity of Oh, wow, Venus really? Oh, that's sun. interesting. That's an interesting experiment. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. That's a good test. Basically, yeah. if you cannot detect Venus in our solar system, then forget. you cannot yeah. detect Venus. Or, uh -huh. Interesting uh, test. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, we can't do that with JWST, but yeah, interesting. Test. Yeah, and there was a question about will JWST look at it, and I think that it probably would if the case could be made. First of all, if it transits the star, what JWST could do would then be to look at the spectrum of the atmosphere. Uh, of the, well, to even not uh, transit because this uh, is so close to us, so the planet, you know, probably have the refraction or thermal emission. Those are actually, uh, in, in fact, my team now is doing the uh, further investigation on that. To study and and see uh, if we have any refraction, you know, spectra or maybe the uh, thermal emission from the planet itself can be detectable. If they can, yeah, JWST or maybe Hubble or even ground-based telescope will follow up to do more study because they are so close. You can't find another planet like Super Earth uh, closer than this planet. This is okay. the, yeah, oh. sixteen light years away. That's not that's not yes. uh, that's not very far away at all. Okay, yeah. well, I got to stop it there. I want to thank my guest uh, Jean G. He's a professor of astronomy, University of Florida, also the director of the Dharma Planet Survey. Uh, also with me was the uh, is, was Dr. Matthew Mutterspa. He was the he's the project scientist of the Dharma Planet Survey. You should check those guys out uh, on at the university. It's operated by the University of Florida, right, guys? Yes. Yes. Oh, um, and also with me was uh, uh, Bo Ma, a postdoc working with these guys who did a lot of the data analysis and and wrote the pipeline to handle the uh, detections. So I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you all for joining. Oh, thank great. you. This I'm is glad a really you wonderful. brought on the call, Bo. I really yeah. appreciate that. That's maybe great. maybe last minute, I do want to maybe make a acknowledgement. You know, this project, you know, been going this this you know with such great results is really the team effort. You know, have a lot of people put the effort yeah. to, and uh, we Family. have a lot of former students, uh, you know, staff work on the project. We have a telescope uh, you know, engineer. We show the picture part of those, and also we have people, uh, you know, grad students, undergrad students. There, a lot of people put a lot of effort in the lab, at the observatory, to eventually make this happen. Without all these wonderful engineer and the student and the postdoc and, and the, even undergrad. And uh, without them, it's just impossible. It's yeah. Really yeah. And that's, that's a, a great sign, team. And that's a sign of the times, too. I mean, a lot of astronomy is yeah. done this way, folks. Huge collaborations. Yes. It's hard to get things done all by yourself. Gone are the days of Edwin Hubble sitting behind the eyepiece and, and taking uh, photographic plates. It's a lot so of So we have 16 years to watch this uh, planet and see if Nero really blew it up. 
<laughs> Maybe Vulcan said we. Ah, oh, now there's a good <laughs> reference. That's right. 16 years right. from now, we might find out if it's still even there. 16 from now, Vulcan maybe said, "Oh, you know, we are there now. Well, you better your data now." <laughs> All right, folks. All right. Well, thank okay, you guys. Okay. Uh, I want to th- on, on behalf of my co-host Carol Christian. I want to thank you all so much. Okay, thanks for watching. Guys and as yeah, always, yeah, bye bye. And as always, now. let me say my thing. <laughs> as always. Keep fucking up. Keep fucking up. Okay, Carol did it. You are right. Bye, guys.